Washington Capitals are the 2018 Stanley Cup champions. It's not a dream. It's not a desert barrage. It's Lord Stanley, and he is coming to Washington. Welcome back to Japers Rink Radio. I'm your host, Greg Young. And today uh, we have a friend of the podcast, I think it's fair to say, right, uh, Mr. Peter Hassett? Uh, it's, uh, this, I think this is your second time being on this year, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and I think the last time we had a great conversation, it lasted over an hour, and I don't know if we're going to make it that long. But uh, I, uh, Mr. Peter Hassett, it's good to have you on. Oh, uh, thank you for having me. It's such a privilege. I, I always enjoy chatting, Greg. All right. So... To kind of start, um, we have a trade. Um, the Pittsburgh Penguins uh, just traded uh, their first round pick, which is 15th overall, Evan Rodriguez, Philip Hollander, who um, Luke Adamanis from the site tells me is good, uh, and then David Warofsky uh, to the lease for Kasperi Kapanen, Jesse Lindgren, and a guy named Aberg. I think it's Aberg, a- but... I think it's Pontus Aberg, but I but I'm I'm Pontus wrong Aberg. about most things. Well, I mean, first off, that is a A plus hockey name, is it not? Oh, it's yeah, it's top tier. It's great. It's great. All right, uh, but kind of, I guess, what gut reaction? What when you saw that trade? What was kind of your thinking there? It is. Uh, I'm sorry to put everything through like a caps uh, a prism, but it's like what the caps do times fifty, right? Like. The the Penguins are just like, yeah, we're going to suck for a long time pretty soon. So let's just keep tweaking this thing. Like just the idea of dealing a first round fifth like pick, like, you know, top half of the league pick for whatever reason. Uh, yeah. For, for a player that like Kevin and, you know, you know, what's going to happen. You're going to put him next to Crosby and you're going to see if he can score 40. Right. That's that's the <laughs> that's, that's the Pittsburgh game. But and honestly, he'll be fine. But that's uh, I mean, it it gives the Leafs a lot of room. It gives them a lot of fun options for the future. It keeps their cap hit low. So, like, it gives a huge out to a, a team that's pretty interesting in the East, even if they're underperforming. And yeah. it, it basically says the Penguins are going to be more dangerous for a little bit of time, and then it's going to stop. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, I don't know where, uh, <laughs> the, you know, the like, crash the farm, is coming. We just don't know when. I mean, at least they're not ranked 31st among all farms by uh, by the Athletic. That's true. Although I think they're going to be 30th is the thought. So it's not like. There, it's. I mean, in many ways, and I guess we can kind of we'll talk about this a little later. But I, I guess we could broach this now a little bit. It's interesting how, as much as uh, the Caps and Pens, like kind of a Joker Riddler thing of like they kind of are both in a very similar but kind of dual position of each other. In that you have aging cores, you have a a GM that I think is willing to be aggressive and kind of make these moves, and uh, kind of an open question in net. So I, I don't know. Like I think it's. It's kind of an interesting trade for me when you kind of think about it from that perspective. I I mean, I like I think there's a huge potential for absolute disaster here. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think I think the Penguins made a mistake. But I also wonder if I if I had this, if I had a vision of my team sort of falling to bits in the next couple of years, I wonder if I would go for it as well and say, listen, guys, we're going to have to get ready for lean years and then we're going to start rebuilding. But as long as yeah. I've got you know, Sid and Gino here, we're going to try and, and tweak the margin. So um, I, I think it's a bad idea, but I also think it's probably a bad idea made for benevolent reasons and, and you know, for yeah. the best motivation possible. Well, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because it's, I, I still do think ultimately you can maybe eke out one more cup if you get really lucky. Uh, Cause I mean, we look at the Penguins. Yeah. They lost to the Canadians in a series that, Carey Price actually did kind of steal, uh, yeah. but they were they were a pretty good team last year, and all of their underlying metrics I think were pretty good. So I, I, I don't I don't know kind of what Casper Capitan brings to that. I would imagine they're going to probably, like you said, try to put him on the line there. But I think it'll be interesting. So uh, with that being said, we're going to switch to a topic that is also interesting, but I think a little more. I, we got to dive into this Isles series. So I think with the Capitals, my plan here is uh, we're going to dissect what went wrong, starting kind of on the micro level. So 
I don't know. The Islanders, that was, I think, five of the more frustrating games I've seen, with one giant exception, which is the second and third periods of game four. But I don't know. It was just, I don't, Peter, what did you, like, it was just tough to watch, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, that was, I would agree 100% with the way you just characterized it. Those were three and a half brutally boring games. It was like the overtime period of the Caps losing to the Canes in game seven last year in the playoffs, but over a whole series rather than just one overtime period. Like there was yeah. a feeling of inevitability before the Canes eliminated the Caps in, in 2019. This mm-hmm. was a feeling of inevitability. I mean, like we're in like the second period. You're like, man, if the Capitals ever show up, the Islanders are going to be in trouble, but they didn't except for nope. <laughs> a and a half uh, in game four. Yes. Yeah. The, uh, no, it was absolute just piss poor. Um, one of the worst playoff performances I've ever seen by, by this team. Uh, and yeah. like, it's in a different way than like the 2010 blow up or the getting swept by the um, the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning and was that 2012? Like those are all yeah, different ways right. of yeah. losing. And this one, mm-hmm. maybe it was 2011. Um, that this is this was just like uh, man, if if the Caps had won this, it would have been grand larceny. Yes. Like they just didn't deserve a, a second of it. Um, no. with you know the exception of like three players who scored a buttload of goals. Yeah. Let me let me ask you this. I'm kind of curious how you think about this. What do you make of the second and third periods in game four? Because I to me, it would be a much easier series to just say if those periods hadn't happened. So kind of what, what do you make of those? I um I, just, I always think back to this, this study I, I read about um soccer players and how yeah. like soccer players, they're really good athletes in a lot of ways. And if like you were to put like an odometer on them or whatever, you would find that they track just like lots of miles in a game but the thing that they're really excellent at is conserving their effort so that they can sprint when they need to sprint and just do like you know a, like a stride or a trot when they need you know when they want to otherwise and for the capitals it felt like they didn't have that at all but when they they found for a minute or two that they could sprint that they could play yeah. two two periods balls to the wall and and really kill it and look fun i mean i had a blast yeah, but that, that was, was great. I had so much fun watching that. But it was ephemeral, and uh, yeah. it it didn't sustain. And as soon as things went back to the status quo, once they ran out of wind, uh, it felt exactly like it did in games one through three. And that's that's probably it in a nutshell. Yeah, it was. It was. And I okay. So I think that one of the things that I and I, I asked this to Adam, and I'm curious kind of where you're going to go with this question. To me, it seemed on one hand that Trotz's system, I think, kind of clearly it suffocated the Caps and maybe it wasn't the best system for this team to play against. But I don't know, at least to me, watching some of these other teams, I think if the Caps put that kind of effort against Boston or Tampa, they might even have not not only just gotten swept, but we might be talking about like 7-2 kind of scores or something like that. So do you do you think that this was kind of trot slowing things down or do you think that this was just the caps not showing up this was the caps not showing up i mean i think uh if anyone understood why the capitals sucked in the series it would be barry trotz and todd Erden. but sure. um i think that the capitals effort they put together from the moment they stepped into the bubble was a shadow of what this team could have been and was at its best during the regular season and i don't think that they were that bad. I don't think they were in the neighborhood of, uh, you know, coach firing levels um, during the regular season uh, on a bunch of different ways. I think there's there were always like flaws with the team and there were gaps and but they were also playing pretty strong hockey with like decent fundamentals for a bunch of different points there. And I think like they were trending in the right direction, just super freaking slow. Yeah. Uh, so I I I think that what we saw when they showed up in the postseason was a gigantic step back. Just everything that could have gone wrong with a handful of exceptions. And and most of you are thinking about like, Oh, you putting up four goals that that, uh, like everything that could have gone wrong did. Um, so I, yeah, I think the, the, uh, the Bruins, the bolts would have just blown them out of the room. Um, and yeah, you're right. Like I, we would have had like a laugher, like a set, you know, seven, two laugher. Absolutely. Um, that said like, not not to like disparage trots or anything like that, but I don't think this was, um, you know, he, he got big brained. I don't think that's it at all. (laughs) Like the Capitals (laughs) couldn't, couldn't do a breakout pass. Like, um, you know, they were just turning the puck over neutral all the time. And that wasn't just like 
systems that was a lot of some of this stuff was conditioning i saw um like uh richard ponick get get walked uh, like a handful of times on breaks um and you obviously you shouldn't have that many you shouldn't be like chasing the play that much but the caps were chasing the play all the time and that's like one of the one of the things that you see that come out of that is a crazy ton of stick penalties when the players get frustrated and they're reaching Mm -hmm. yeah yeah It, it was it was it was maddening and i think i mean you could talk about like Carlson, who clearly I think was obviously hurt pretty much the entire series. Uh, but I, you know, you just you look at it, and at least to me, the second and third periods of Game Four also said that, yeah, I mean, maybe there were tactic issues, but really, like it when the Caps felt like playing, they they were they clearly I think had that kind of capability. But it, I don't know, and I, we 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 get into the coach a little bit here, and. I don't know, like, how much of the blame for this conditioning do we put on Reardon versus kind of the players? And I know that this is always a tricky question because we don't always really know, but I, I don't know. I'm kind of curious where you kind of put that, uh, I was going to say, like, burden of uh, kind of the, the, the guilt here. I'm torn. Um, so I'm going to be just as wishy-washy as, as you were in setting me up, right? Like, yep. <laughs> such a weird time. Uh and I hope you and all your listeners are doing well. But, like, I, I have a hard time thinking, like, oh, the Caps really, like, well, the Caps did screw up. But, like, I have a hard time, like, wagging my finger at them. Um, I don't know what was going on inside their worlds. Obviously, every team had, like, everyone's living in the same world right now. But it, I, you never know if, if, like, one team or one group of players is struggling in a way that's extraordinary to other ones. I think about, like, Tuka Rask, and I'm just of the opinion that, like, um, Beyond being like, man, they're playing bad. Man, they look like they're out of shape. That's probably as far as I'm willing to go on it. Yeah. Um, and like, I, not that I like begrudge any like organizational decisions that the Capitals made. I sort of understand that as well. But uh, yeah, I, I I think that the the players and the coach both were uh, disappointments here. But uh, I also just I, I my my general opinion is like. There's a danger in taking too much of a lesson out of getting your your nose bloodied as bad as it just was. And I, I say that as a person who fought in the Battle of 2010. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh it's kind of interesting that way. And uh, obviously some of this we're never going to really know. Right. Like we're never going to really know exactly what the Caps conditioning plans were compared to other teams. And I know that because I know that we've talked about this before, that this kind of just goes into our limits as hockey fans and even kind of analysts as we are uh, more you so than me, but uh, there's just, it's, it, it can be tough because there's just limits to the kind of knowledge that we're ever going to really have aside from just the games. And Lord knows there's a lot of other stuff that goes on the background though. I totally agree. And the thing I keep thinking about on that line is when, when Brian McClellan spoke earlier this week or maybe it was over the weekend, whatever, whenever Brian McClellan spoke, all the days bleed together. Um, in the pandemic <laughs> world, but whenever Brian McClellan spoke, he said like he was talking about like the culture slipping. We need to get a hold of it, and he said that he didn't like some things that were happening around December. And so I was like, well, I need to look up what happened in December, and I did, and I was like, damn, the Caps are killing it in December. Like yeah. <laughs> they they weren't winning games, but they were dominating games. Um, sure. and I, I I I know enough about how Brian looks at it to to know that like um he. He he doesn't dismiss the stuff that like we, that you and I are sort of like primarily interested in, but obviously he has he has more information, and I would love to know what that information is, but I'm yeah. not going to. No one's going to tell me. Uh, <laughs> we and, will never know. I mean, the and closest that's, that's, is going to be like like a like a Pell or Kershudian when they, they when they've kind of been on the beat a oh little bit. They, God, they I know we talked about in the past, but oh god, those rule. Yeah, I, oh, I, yeah. I, I want Sam to stick around as long as possible, but when she's ready to go, torch the place. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was uh, it was a Katie Carrera, right? Who wrote the uh, "I will never be a Caps beat writer ever again" article, and kind oh, of just unloaded the barrel. No, she did the she did the the guy uh, Scarface quitting in uh, in half baked scene, except for for uh, hockey journalism. It was great. That that, that might have been before your time. I'm sorry, Greg. No, 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 no. I remember that. I okay. I, I remember that. Uh, I, I think the seminal piece that your site wrote, I think I would argue, is. Uh, the case for and against firing Adam Oates. And if I'm not mistaken, you quoted, I think, pretty liberally from that article. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's a that is a foundational piece of Washington Capitals journalism. So yeah. uh, 
I yeah, I, I, I will always owe a debt of gratitude to uh, to uh, you guys for that one. Uh, so I guess let's kind of we talked about Reardon and that's been every what everyone is talking about. So I guess we should probably talk about it, too. I guess I'm going to frame it like this. Um, was it fair that he was fired? But even if it wasn't, should he have still been fired? Um, when I firing people based off of the playoffs is better than firing somebody based off of like uh rolling dice but not a ton yeah. better <laughs> so like man it was awesome when barry trotz it was great when barry trotz won that stanley cup but i also know that he was a bounce away from going down 3-0 to, to the columbus blue jackets in the, in the first round so uh it was kevin from our site that like wrote the article about like uh they should fire Barry Trotz and you read the article and it's not wrong. Right. <laughs> like it wasn't. Yeah. And I think like, um, like JP and, and, uh, Kevin both have like a, like a sort of like laissez faire attitude, not laissez faire, but they're, they're sort of like, yeah, it's coaches. What are you going to do? Like they're easy to fire. You got to do it. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I get, I get emotionally attached to my boys, but, uh, I totally, I totally understand where they're coming from. And like, he, coaches are the most fungible asset on a hockey team. They're the easiest to move. And uh, when you're not with, happy with things are going, especially if you as like a, a general manager have an agenda to like protect your position, go for it. Yeah. Uh, yeah that said, I, like I get like every day that passes and this is <laughs> that's like zoom out too far, but every day that passes, I think more and more about like, uh, Man, I'm just uncomfortable with the idea of like rooting for somebody to get fired. Now. So, I mean, I'm, and I, I say that as the person, particularly like, that, like in these days, right now. Exactly, that's exactly what I mean. But like, and I say that as a person that like said like they should fire Adam Oates. I mean, Adam Oates is fine. He's 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 probably making more money like scamming players into like hold your stick like this on like a one on one basis than he was at yeah, as a head coach of hockey team. Like two two de- degree curves to the left or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So like he, he's doing fine, but I like in hindsight, I'm like, I don't like the idea of like rooting for him to be out of a job. I, yeah. So, so it, like that leaves like a bad taste in my mouth. And like, I also know that like the reasons for which Todd Reardon got fired, I don't know if are directly attributable to him. And I could, I think I could list as many things that he did awesome as yeah. he did poorly. Uh, and it's just that the, the poorly things like hit him more like the like I think maybe like his he didn't have the the defensive pairs like just didn't pan out like we thought they would. And Kuznetsov, yeah. I think, took uh, evident steps back um, over the last two seasons. Uh, but damned if Ovechkin didn't kick some ass. And I think he got some really interesting stuff happening on the on, on uh, the PK. Obviously, the power play is underperforming a little bit. Um, yeah. He has been dealing with. Uh, injuries to some of his bigger role players, I think like of Nick Backstrom and John Carlson in particular, that yeah. I think could have especially hurt like the power play. So I'm not so pessimistic, but I think it's a mixed bag. And uh, are you going to do better on like the free market of coaches? There's only 35 of them apparently. Uh, and 32 <laughs> of them have jobs. And they're, so all, and they're all white men. of course. They're all white dudes. So pick a white dude and see how it goes. I don't know. It's it's we're all just making stuff up. Maybe you need a different accent to tell people to get pucks in deep and get it on the forecheck, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You need you need somebody to say it in a, like a slightly different tone of voice to say the exact yes. same thing that everyone always says. Um, that said, uh, like I think it'd be cool uh, once it was clear to me that Reardon wasn't actually overhauling systems, um, and he absolutely freaking should have. And I, I think uh. Like JP and Kevin over at your site did a great job on multiple occasions of discussing sort of like the Reed Cashman problem. Yes. Um, uh, once it was clear that he wasn't overhauling the, that stuff, and it was clear that he was unhappy with the defensive play of the team in a bunch of ways. Just just looking at like the way he was using personnel oh, yeah. uh, from day to day, like those he knew those were problems, and he wasn't happy with the solutions. And like the Brennan Dillon thing was happening, and uh, they weren't necessarily being as like they should have used Faravari more. But like there was. Um, I don't know. Yeah. He never totally felt comfortable with Brendan Dillon, I would say. I agree with that. And and I thought in the fact that he didn't go as sort of dramatic as he could have, like if you've got a Kuznetsov and a Verona, like you can play totally different styles of hockey from one line to the next. And the Capitals are not run and gun, but they are absolutely tooled for it on at least like two of their lines. So like Nick Backstrom doesn't have wheels anymore, but Jake does. So like, like, uh, but they they played you know uniform hockey uh, top to the bottom and you can see it works sometimes and it doesn't work sometimes and so you'd have games where like you have three lines killing it and then your third line gets buried 
Yeah. And like finally something clicks and you're like, oh, dude, we need to play Pontic with with uh, Dowd. And yeah, let's do that forever. That sounds great. Yeah. But and then yeah. the fourth line all of a sudden was like one of the better lines and better fourth lines in hockey. Absolutely. Yeah. I, and I think yeah. that's a really strong thing that they should build on next year. And as you know, even if those players are like, you know, term limited, like you, you got to keep they should absolutely identify what's working for the team. And that's one of them. That yeah. and like, no, like Dowd had. Yeah, I, I was just looking this up. Dowd had three uh, shorties last year, last season. Yeah. And four other goals. So like half his, <laughs> half his output almost came from from playing a man down. Go for that. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's what's interesting is like, I mean, how well the Caps, how good the Caps were on the PK, right? Because we talk, and I think I tweeted this one, we talk about systems, right? You can't really get any more system heavy than the PK. And the Caps PK, I think was pretty great. Like it, even during this disaster Islander series, like obviously they ran out of gas, I think later on as the series drug, but like that's, I think that was one thing that it was interesting to see kind of those contrasts, right? Because we talk about the power play and, is it static? Is it not? Like, I think we can have different opinions on that. But it, it's just interesting how when we talk about tactics, tactics and systems not working, we have a very limited view of what that really means. And the the Capitals is a land of contrasts, especially yes. like the, the PK, because like the PK is in a way some of the hardest hockey to play. Like it's exhausting, but it's also the simplest in that like your uh, risk benefit calculation is the furthest to one side, right? You're just like, yeah. oh, dude, don't get scored on. Just throw your damn body in front of the puck if you have to. Like, we're not trying to score uh, here. We're just trying to stay alive. And that allows, like, things to be a lot simpler. And, what, like, the interesting to, thing to me about hockey, at least, like, during, like, five on five, is that it's always about how offense and defense are the same thing. And they're ha- like you have both forces pushing and pulling at the same time. And yes. the way you play your defense can lead to how fast you can transition your offense. And like that's I don't know, that's my favorite part of of like five on five hockey. Yeah. Uh, and well, uh, I mean, it's like it, it's that slow murmur of the crowd as you start to see the, the defenseman look up ice. Right. Yeah, like, right, uh, right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, I mean, have, to me, that's know, why I love watching someone like Dmitry Orlov so much. Right. When he's going that he's he's brilliant at that. He's a great distributor and, and like it's so it's so frustrating to see that the team is just getting like curb stomped when it comes to moving the puck from like the defenseman trying to do the breakout. You've already got your forwards in the neutral. They're sort of like stacking up long center ice uh, and they just like they're they're so slow. And yeah. like they honestly, at some point I was like, just do the stretch pass, guys. Like you will get more out of a lazy ass stretch pass than you will out of like a. Uh, Getting like stymied, like hard around and then dump a chase. Like if you do, if you get, if you have to do like three dump chases in a row after getting like turned away twice, you might as well just do like a a stupid stretch pass and see if Kuzi can make something happen. Yeah. Yeah. Or, I mean, just let Kuzi or some of your skill just kind of break, break the, break the norm and just kind of try to dissect or kind of get the puck in. Because I think that was, I mean, we talk about Kuznetsov and because that to me is kind of the key capitals player going forward, because I, I think with his contract, he's pretty much, I won't, I won't say untradeable, but I think you're going to have to pay or get pennies of the dollar for someone with his skill set. And I kind of think the next coach is going to, at least to me, there's going to be a lot of questions about Ovechkin, but the thing I'm more curious about is what they think they can get out of Kuznetsov. Uh, I think his value since the cup season has crashed. Yes. Um, like, like I thought that he was going to be a 30 goal scorer. Um, next year, it looks like he's going to struggle to be a 20 goal scorer. Uh, his point output has almost halved. I think he's like he went from like 80 to 52 or something like that. Like, I, I'm really worried about Kuznetsov as a player. Um, like, the idea was he can take over a game if, if I won't say if he wants to. I think that's you know the scam. But like, uh, he can absolutely do marvelous stuff, and he's a a, a, a truly gifted offensive player. Mm-hmm. but he's playing l- way less offense than he would need to, to, to have that be worth anything. And yeah. Well, cause I mean, we talk about his defense as being, it's, I mean, like I, I, you just look at the high danger chances of the last two years. Right. I mean, we're talking about like some of maybe like the worst in terms of forwards, just in all of the NHL with Kuznets on. Yeah. Uh, I think that's uh, absolutely fair. Yeah. I, I he's yeah. probably one of the worst defensive forwards in the league. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, all right. I'm going to ask two more coaching questions and then we can take a break and move on to more interesting stuff. One is I'm kind of curious 
I know that at the site we've written about the difficulty of going to assistant coach or being an assistant coach and then getting promoted uh, as, as being different jobs. And I don't know, to me, I'm almost wondering if this, this job that Todd Reardon took was, I won't say impossible, but really, really difficult in ways that maybe we didn't appreciate at the time to do, to do as well as, as, as possible. So I don't know. Let me, let me, Pitch this in a broad way. Was this coaching job that Todd Reardon took after the cup run, was it an impossible job? No. No, I don't think so. Okay. No. I mean, like, what, was it impossible? Like, no, the, the team got better in, like, three significant underlying stats, right? Like, if sure. you look just, like, and, they're like, they they kept winning, you know, point. Obviously, their playoff performance blew. Yes. But that's... uh. I'm trying to think of that game you play where like you have all the letters out in front of you and like a bunch of people put their hand on the thing in the middle and then it goes under the like thing. Ouija board? Thank you. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> like I was just saying like the playoffs are like a Ouija board. No one knows why it happens. It just happens. Um, anyway, uh, the, I, I know, I think I, some of the time, <laughs> I think the like fundamentals of, of uh, Reardon's accomplishments have been really good. Um, yeah. It's it just that you can't, fall on your face as hard as they did in this most recent postseason after losing a like a heartbreaker to the 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 canes last year like those are two really bad back-to-back performances and without the sort of like exciting upside that like like boost Boudreau had at the time like in like the early i guess in 2010 there's just not a lot of like motivation to hold on there and especially with the stuff we don't know i i understand it i just don't i'm not happy about it but it's not gonna break my heart i also think like todd reardon is uh respected enough that he's going to get another shot relatively soon maybe not as a head coach but like i think toronto just has like 15 or 16 assistant coaches he'll be like the 17th he'll be fine there you go i mean lord knows they have the budget for it right so they might as well just throw money at it um so i i don't know like do you have a a dream new coach or uh, different coach for the caps uh i know that i think you've talked positively about gerard galat i think you, you i mean me too i think you've seen a lot of kind of popular support around that so is that your kind of coach or is there someone maybe off the board that you're curious about uh, the caps would be trying out? Yeah. So I'm um, sorry to, to stir the pot a little bit, but uh, <laughs> the, the next coach of the Washington Capitals must have an alliterative name, whether it's Gerard Gallant or um, Bruce Boudreau. Uh, Boudreau. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my <laughs> position. Uh, I, something I, about I, it, right? I've, I've always liked Gallant, uh, e- even when the caps were playing against him. Uh, I, I'm oh I somebody said like are you still okay with him the way he got fired from the last two teams I was like yeah those firings were weird and sketchy as hell uh the, like the I, Vegas I, one was bizarre I the thought. Vegas one was bizarre and I think it was just that he wasn't uh like McPhee was no longer the GM he moved like president and it wasn't this guy or something like that I don't know yeah um, like that. and the 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 Panthers one I think was just a mistake like it was a bad yeah. idea and no one needs to feel bad about that ever. So I, <laughs> the I, Panthers I think, themselves, I think that's that seems an apt description of that team sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I think he's a unbesmirched uh, uh, head coach. I think yes. he plays a like a, a, a style that had been um, fun, fast and reactive, um, which I think is exactly what the Capitals need where they're at right now. I don't yeah. necessarily think that like Boost Boudreaux is what they need, <laughs> like uh, for like an aging forward, uh, you know, like oh that's can doing it. Uh, but then again, we've seen Boost Boudreaux play a bunch of different styles, and he fell in love with like a Jason Zucker in yes. in Minnesota. Like I would bet that uh, like if you were to ask Boudreaux, you know, give me like your five top five forwards you ever coached, Zucker's gonna be up there because he could just do everything. He wasn't like a like a highlight goal scorer, but he was such a reliable player. I mean, he yes. I, to me he was like the Bergeron of the West for yeah. for he's like a, a Swiss time. Army knife of players basically. Yeah, yeah, and so like that that's encouraging to me that like Boudreaux played you know a different way out there. Uh, yeah. And I thought he had you know good results in California, not good results on California, but he had you know bright spots given the roster when he was in yeah. Anaheim. So like. Uh, yeah, I, I I like Bruce Boudreaux a lot. I just think he's a really fun person and personality. And uh, as a person who's like, you know, livelihood in part depends on how interesting the Washington Capitals are. I've got a bias. Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I, <wanna> be. <laughs> I mean, that was the first like great Caps team of this run, right? Was Bruce Boudreaux oh. kind of like, I'm not creating it, but really maybe no, actually he did. He, it, taking dude, things off and letting him play. The before and after of, of when he took over versus um. 
uh, so like, uh, what was the other example? The other example was like Dan Bilesma taking over in Pittsburgh the year that they won in 2009. Like the befores and afters of those teams, like the Caps, you know, making into the playoffs, like on the, the very end of that season uh, with like, I think it was like Cristobal Hue, Hue win it, like just doing some awesome goaltending work and the Caps playing like a fun style. And then like the very next year you see uh, the, the, um, the Penguins do the same thing with uh, uh, Mike Bosma and then make it all the way to the Stanley Cup. Like uh, it, it makes me believe that like there are, these are not just, you know, players independent of everything else. And uh, or it's not just like the players play the style of hockey and the coach doesn't matter. I think in most cases, the coach, we think coaches matter more than they do. But uh, here in Washington, we've seen some examples where coaches matter. <laughs> uh, yes. Dan I think, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it was just very stark, right? I mean, after, it was, I mean, particularly with, I just think of the transition with Dale Hunter, right? Of one minute, you have Bruce Boudreaux, and yeah, they were playing the trap, but they were still a fundamentally good hockey team in a lot of ways. And then Dale Hunter comes in, and then you have Alex Ovechkin playing like a unsustainably low amount of minutes and attempting to block shots for some reason. Just the dumbest. I mean, every every coach, even Trotz was like, no, I'm going to try Ovechkin on the PK. And you're like, no, yeah. you're not. No, you're not. You're going to do it <laughs> until like October 7th and then you're going to quit. Like everyone, everybody tries this. It's not a, it's not grownups. Don't do this for more than more than four games. But yeah. Uh, and um, <laughs> I mean, if we're, if we're going to pump one another's websites tires, the, uh, the FML article, uh, which is what I always think of it as the, you know, uh, Boudreaux of Etchkin trap FML was like, it's like the, the, the slug of uh, a JP story from years back about like why, yeah. how the caps overreacted to, uh, that just awful loss to uh, to Montreal, which I hadn't thought about until I, I you know wrote about I wrote a relatively uh, inflammatory article about the Capitals having a rough time in the playoffs uh, this yeah. year uh, <laughs> with, a, with a title that isn't appropriate uh, even for our own website style guide. So I had to do an emojis, but the um, in there I didn't realize it, but like in the I, last I can explicit mark this, so you you can go ahead if you want. Oh, I don't need to, but. The I, when I went, I pulled up like series uh, expected goals for and against um, for like every playoff series from like the last decade. And it took a while to do. And then and when I pulled it up, I was like, wow, I didn't realize that the Caps versus the uh, Canadians, like the Caps. Yeah, it was like one of the like, best. <laughs> doubled up the Canadians and expected goals. It's just that they couldn't convert because they just got I mean, like people use the word halak as like a verb now and getting a halak or halaking another team is massive it's it's a huge deal like uh and you can't let it you can't let it break your brain you just gotta you gotta toughen it up and and fight through it or make make a change that's less dramatic right but don't play the damn trap the worst thing i could see the caps doing now is be like oh we need to play boring ass like anaheim ducks 2016 hockey like yeah. please don't do that to me no agreed and uh, I, I think for other reasons, there's a coach that I know that my site, I, I, well, I, I say this because I was asked about this on the radio today. So let's just talk about it real quick. Uh, you just I, brag that you had a radio hot spot today. Is that what that was? I did. Yeah, yeah. I, nice, uh, I, I made my radio appearance or debut today. So that good was that was exciting. Yeah. Um, and they and I was asked about because it was a Toronto radio station. Of course, I was asked about Mike Babcock and uh, I. I, you know, clearly I think the hosts were pretty, uh, like interested in, in, in Babcock. I am very much not, and I get the sense you are not too. So I think like, I, I mean, tactics aside, I think it would just send a message at least to me as someone who isn't like an LGBT fan and all that. It's like, I think the message that having him be the coach would just send is, really disheartening in a lot of ways. Like as a Caps fan, I accept that some of the players are going to have some political beliefs that I don't agree with. Right. And that's fine. But I don't know. It just, to me, it would send such a strong message against what I would at least like the team to pretend to stand for that. That would just be really frustrating. And I, I don't know, that was kind of a ramble, but I don't know. Kind of where are you at on this with Babcock? Um, I wish that I could get somebody to tell me why Mike Babcock got fired. Was it because Toronto was not doing well on the ice? I mean, was that the ostensible reason or was that the actual reason? Because well, I mean, I think it, he got right. fired. Everyone's like, hey, by the way, this all happened, too. Yes. So I, it's tricky, right? I, mean, they, I think they were underachieving. They weren't a, they weren't in a playoff spot when he got fired. And 
really they they weren't in a consistent one all year in a kind of weird year for them. But I don't know. I mean, it seems like that's kind of still an open question a little bit now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's what well, if he was fired for off ice off ice reasons that that tells me that we have like uh, a slow drip situation and we've only you know you and I as like public people only received like a fraction of uh, the like the actual story there. But yes. him being like, you know, abusive to players, you know, verbally um, being like having the second he's out of a position of power, having people say like worst coach I ever played underneath um, uh, saying that he allowed for uh, kinds of abuses uh, from like his subordinates that would, you know, literally chill your blood. Uh, yeah, I think he's the exact wrong kind of person uh, besides like the like the payday stuff. Um, he's also seems like he may be a coach that is wildly overrated and may yes. have just been benefiting from uh, a, a GM that outsmarted everybody for about five years in a row. Uh, yep. And Detroit, just a, a monster team, uh, you know, for what, from like 90, whatever to 2010 or whatever. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, and then winning the gold medal with Canada on maybe the most stacked hockey roster that has been known to man. Yeah, that means nothing to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. the, the gold medal is nothing. Like, oh, my third line center is, I don't know. I, I can't remember who other damn lines were. Like, oh, was like, yeah, we're going to put in the right? bottom six. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. Oh, man. That was a really good candidate team. But, uh, yeah, I, I think I'm with you on that. So, uh, yeah, and it's... Uh, like I said, I, I I think that we accept as hockey fans that there's going to be some parts of the sport that we want to be better and maybe aren't going to come right away. But to me, it just it seems like if if what happened in Toronto is true and we don't really have reason to believe it wasn't. And as you said, this might well have been the tip of the iceberg, at least to me, you just got to think about the message that sends not just to the team. But also, I mean, the Capitals are involved in the community and stuff like that. And I don't, I don't know what kind of message that sends to, particularly when you have the Caps trying to be more involved in kind of various issues around like Black Lives Matter and LGBT stuff. I just, I don't, I'm kind of a yeah, little. I, don't, I yeah. want to presume that like Mike, ha- I don't know Babcock's attitudes specifically on, on like some of the, like. I don't know. Sure. Here's the thing. Like he may just be too weak-willed to not fall awash to like the general inertia of like, you know, the sports orthodoxy about those points. And I I bet that he would say, like, if you were to ask him, he would say something like mealy mouthed and, and, uh, you know, I guess like arbitrary about the actual like issues. Um, I don't know. It's, it's super messy. And I would just say like, yeah, you don't need that. You don't need that at all. That said, like, Like, (laughs) and, but I mean, who knows? Like, like, you may have uh, coaches that have all the same attitudes, but they're just more insidious about it. Uh, and I don't know. I don't, I, uh, Boudreau was, he couldn't even curse right. Like he couldn't even do curse words in the right order. So, you know, he's good. Do you know what I mean? Like he's too much of a bumbling sweetheart yeah, to be a classic video, right? Exactly. Get your heads out of your asses and don't just want it. Go out and effing want it. Yes. I, I, I think because we, we have some new fans on here, so we should probably set that up a little bit because uh, I think we're, we're, we're old hat at this point. Uh, when the Capitals were playing the Penguins at the uh, I think it was the 2010 Winter Classic. That might be right. It might be a little earlier than that. Um, they were playing particularly poorly and all of the uh, the road to the Winter Classic camera crew was there and captured a legendary Bruce Boudreaux rant that is still on YouTube somewhere if you want to find it. I highly recommend it. Peter, I'm sure that you do as well. Yeah, and I mean, I could do most of it right here. Like, you're playing like you're scared. And don't just think you want the puck. Go out and effing want it. Which, it just says the same thing twice, but with the curse (laughs) for the second time. And you know what he's trying to say. And then, like, later in the same thing, like, he either has a skin condition or barbecue on his face. And then, like, the... (laughs) Whoever did like the post production of this video is like, let's jack up the saturation by a billion, then jack up the exposure and make him look like a freak. Uh, and that and they did. And uh, whatever. Great, great coach. Total sweetheart of a guy. Awesome family. Um, that's my position. Yeah. I obviously everyone's gonna be like, no, thanks. But I want that dude to be back in the league ASAP. Uh, I, everyone's saying he's going to be like an AC and um, 
in Toronto. That sounds fine too. Yeah, that would that would be fine. I think actually a AC job in Toronto with all those young players actually might be might be a good thing. Um, so we'll see. With that, we're gonna take a quick break, and then on the other side, I'm gonna ask Pete about uh, Caps roster construction and what we should do in the off season. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Jaypers Rink Radio. I'm still here with uh, Peter Hassett. So Peter, I think one of the things that I I asked Adam this, and I'm curious kind of where you're at on it too is kind of another macro question about the Caps roster construction. And I mean, when we talk about playoff underperformance and kind of the small sample size, at least to me, there is one thing that's worth talking about, which is uh, I, I don't, I don't want to talk so much about the Capitals window, but maybe ways that we could think about how the roster should be kind of reconstructed. So I don't know um, where, at least to me, some of the problems is that there's not a ton of depth coming up the pipeline aside from McMichael. Your core is getting older, and there's kind of a question about whether an OV Backstrom Carlton core can win a cup. And the rest of the East is starting to look pretty scary. They're in the same division as Carolina, who at some point is going to break through in a more sustained way. Obviously, they went to the Eastern Conference Finals last year, so they're starting. Um, I don't know, kind of, do you see a core for the Capitals right now that could still win a Stanley Cup? Yeah. I do. Um, I, I don't believe in like cores necessarily like everyone does, but the idea of like uh, if if Nikki Backstrom was your first line center and Ovechkin was your first your your top scorer and like John Carlson's playing his best hockey and let's say like you've got like Ilya Samsonov who like develops as you expect, that's enough to win a cup. Sure. Um, at least from like your like your top heaviness. Um, I, I don't think like I would necessarily like put them up against I don't know like. Uh, Boston necessarily. I don't know if that would like line up great. Uh, or like, Colorado's core, you would say maybe. Sure, yeah, and and I think you're absolutely right, especially like looking at like a player like Andre Sveshnikov in in Carolina. Like that's a really special young player, and we need to protect him. But yes. uh, but I, I like don't, it's don't it, it, Alex <laughs> and, and and keep him in bubble wrap. But the he's uh, yeah. I, I think that you can win a, a cup with these players. These players are old and older, and I think they need to get a little creative. And I think, I mean, they, they, there's there's probably a chance that like they could find a way to do some addition through subtraction. Not to say that they've got like obvious drags, but they've got some inefficiencies in the way they're you know spending money. I, I mean, if you asked me a couple years ago, I thought that they should have uh, uh, let Carlson walk at the peak of his contract. Uh, they should have signed Verona to a long-term deal rather than a bridge. Uh, and I feel like, I mean, John Carlson's probably going to win the Norris this summer, but, uh, I still feel like I'm right about both those ideas <laughs> in hindsight. Um, that, and there's a real chance that they're going to lose like somebody like a TJ Oshie next summer to the expansion draft, uh, which takes a lot of scoring out of that top six, uh, and a surprising amount of durability. Uh, obviously he wasn't really available for last year's playoffs, but, uh, I thought he was a fine performer in, in this year's playoffs. Uh, he, I mean, he was what, one of, like, four Capitals who scored or whatever, yeah, right. right? Just if you scored at all, that's a good performance, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, I, like, I think it's... We talk about the effort level on various players. You would never say Oshi was dogging it, at least relative to maybe some of the other players we could talk about. But, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's going to be interesting because I, I think I kind of see that. And one of the places I'm really curious about what the Capitals are going to do is on the blue line. And you heard McClellan and Reardon talk a little bit about some of the frustrations on the various blue line and the way various players played. So I don't know for you kind of, if I'm going to give you a magic wand and let you reconstruct the blue line and maybe get a UFA. If it's a, I guess in this magical scenario, we're going to make the cap hit reasonable or whatever. Like how would you, what about the caps blue line kind of, where are you at on, does it need fundamental reshuffling? Do they, do we need to move people around? Kind of, kind of where are you at on that? So uh, accepting that like um, we kind of know what like Brendan Dillon is and that like what we saw from like Nick Jensen at the end of the regular season was accurate, even in the postseason. I think he was pretty good. Uh, yeah. And if Siegenthaler develops as expected and obviously like assuming that they like walk away from Gudis, um, maybe uh, I, I think Michael Kempney really has like a two month audition period as far as I'm concerned before we find yeah. out if it's going to work out or not. Uh, John Carlson needs to get healthy uh, and I would be vicious about sitting him until he's ready to play so that I can figure out if he's good or not. But like, obviously like the problem that they were really having for most of the season was that they couldn't get chemistry going. Um, yeah. 
I have a feeling that like an Orlov Jensen pairing uh, in the regular season, if the rest of the team isn't totally dysfunctional, might be pretty good. Um, I also think that like uh, Jenna Siegenthaler didn't, you know, shake the world to its core, but he was an interesting player. I think Faravari is pretty interesting as well. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't think that they need to make major moves, but if they get another, like, you know, uh, they pretty much just have like two modes, which is like uh, hit and finesse, hit and finesse. And there's no overlap between the two. And I <laughs> they've got some imbalance between like left and right handedness. Um, yeah. Chris Rulo over at our site pointing this one out to me is that like there's just a lot of redundancy in roles. And um, you could tell that they were looking for sort of magic chemistry with all the defensive pair shakeups. I remember I think it was 2018. Maybe it's 2017, but um, when I was pulling numbers for like defensive pairs, I would do this one visualization to see how the pairs work together. And um, you would say like, oh, if they didn't have enough ice time together, I would just like black out like the cell where they overlapped. And you would just see, see like these two defensive players play together like 80 percent of the time during five on five. And you're like, that's wild. Like, yeah, even like, a, like a stable team that never happens. But Trotz was like, nope, this is my defensive pairs. I'm sticking with it. Uh, <laughs> and and. That hasn't happened at all under Reardon, and I understand why. It's because he wasn't happy with the results. And I, when I was looking at him, I was like, I can't figure something else from this either. Like, there was no magic thing to unlock. But that no. said, I, I feel like you could play these exact same. Like, their 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 game five uh, uh, pairs were Dylan Carlson, Orlov Jensen, and then I think it was Siegenthal or Gudis is the third pair. Yeah. Um, yeah, because like, Gudis was actually, like, weirdly okay, I actually thought, during that series. More, maybe more than some of the other players, but yeah. Yeah, and uh, I guess if I'm if I pumping my tires about something I was right about, uh, I, I think the Niskanen for uh, Gudis thing I was wrong about. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, I was 100 percent wrong about that too. Because Niskanen's in the playoffs and uh, Gudis isn't, right? But and Niskanen's uh, looked pretty good too, actually, for the Flyers. Yeah, I need to get a closer look at it, but you're absolutely right. Like, um, there's there's a deeper dive to happen there, and I think we have to like we have to always keep our minds open that like these players are never stuck in a mode. Like they're always changing. Like as much as yes. people are like, Ovechkin just keep scoring, keep scoring. Anyone that's watched that dude for more than three years knows that he's playing, he's changing his style all the damn time. Obviously oh, yeah. he, like the, the Ovi spot didn't exist until 2014. If effectively, like he, he had a different sort of style for it in the past, but the way that the puck moved to him and the way he like set up on that circle and his release, those were different. And then he was like, uh, like the five on five, like the Kuznetsov goal that Kuznetsov scored in game four, which is so much fun was exactly how Ovi used to play every single offensive carry. Like he was the biggest carry in forward in the league for a long time. Yeah. And he would just go Rambo style against people. And like, yeah, he would just go to the net and didn't seem to care particularly who was in his way or not. And it, and like maybe for like half a season, it took him a while to like figure out that that's not going to work, but he made a change. And I feel like yeah, he did. If, if Niskanen's evidence of that, maybe Car and like maybe Carlson can be too. Um, and, and maybe Kuznetsov with some like different kinds of support and without the expectation that he needs to be like F like, well, like F1 on like the, 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 like the four check. Like, I think that that could work too. So I, I'm not necessarily thinking that everything's about construction. And I think that you can see another situation where the caps upper and lower bounds of like potential are a function of systems and coaching uh, and hopefully conditioning and COVID. <laughs> Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, uh, <laughs> just, I mean, like, that's the tricky part, right? There's just so many variables about what happened in the bubble that we'll just never know. Yeah, unless somebody wants to DM me and tell me. Yeah, yeah. Hi, Samantha Powell. You should just give me a DM. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but so, all right. Let's like so kind of focusing on the off season a little. The Capitals have four UFAs. They have Braden Holpe. Uh, Brendan Dillon, uh, Ilya or Ilya Kovalchuk, and Radko Gudis. Um, I, I guess there's talk that the Caps might keep Dillon, but at least for me, it seems kind of unlikely. Almost certainly, they will not be presenting uh, Ilya Kovalchuk, and uh, almost certainly not with Radko Gudis either. So I don't know. Of, of those four, is there any that you keep? Um, yeah, Dillon, uh, Gudis, no, uh, Kovalchuk, no. Um. I think Kovalchuk owes me three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Um, that's pretty concerning. Uh, talk, and talk about, talk about players that really were bad during that postseason. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I want to find out how he got the invisibility technology because that's something that the military needs. Because uh, yeah. I couldn't see that clown. Uh, yeah, no. Um, of those like UFAs, one I think shot on goal. I think Nick Jensen had more. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, like what kind of payday Dylan's expecting. Uh, 
he's just about to turn 30. I and like I I know he's UFA. Um, I don't want him. I mean, maybe he'll just get like the the Jensen Capney special and get like two and a half. Yeah, um, for like four years like, or whatever. Yeah. And if that happens, whatever, I'll shut up. But man, like they're getting this team is getting older. I was doing yes. I was putting together um like a, a spreadsheet for like player season recaps and the and I was like, oh, I always do like a I use like a spectrum, like a, a range of coloring. So like, you know, the guy with the most goals is, you know, a bright green. The guy with the fewest goals is like a dark red. And I was like, oh, I'll just do it with it with age. Uh, and I was like, I'll just you know, set the uh, over under at like 28. And I was like, dude, there's three players. <laughs> there's like yes. four players on the team. <laughs> under this age. This is not good. Yes. Um, so like everything was like. I, bright I, think, red, I think it's like, fair to say like, that even if you don't like if you don't accept the window talk that at some point this crash might might happen. Yeah, I mean, if you look at like traditional aging curves, 26 is the peak and then like 28 to like 30 is a gigantic fall off. And you're not going to get the Ovechkin curve ever. Like, like no. Ovechkin had, was a freak when he was a kid, and he was a freak in how he's aged. That cannot be an expectation. That can't be something you bank on. And, yeah. like, uh, if your top line's average age is, like, 33, uh, which it very well may be next year, like... <laughs> um, probably will be. Well, it depends if they got Kuznetsov up there or not. That's true. And that's like, true. Kuz, Kuz will be, what, 20, 28 next year? Um, yeah, maybe 29, I think, actually. Possibly. Ugh. Yeah. So, like, yeah, those things are all all, all really iffy. Like, the like, a Verona, Siegenthaler, and Samsonov, the S's, are the young guys. Uh, but outside of that, there's there's not – I guess Tom Wilson's still pretty young. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, everyone everyone's 30. So, like, that's a that's a really scary, 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 scary thought there. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. Um, I, mean, and, I guess I would say uh, stay – go light on UFA. Yeah. Um, it's, it's time for, right? like the, like the caps have, have, uh, squeezed a lot of blood from the stone already, but there's, those are diminishing returns. Uh, and if they have a big miss, uh, that'll be a disaster. So, yeah. um, I, I would be, I think it's probably time for them to, to talk about like making a trade and shaking up the core, as they say, not for a reason to like shake it up to like motivate people, but because I think that they can get better value uh, on the market, especially with the way so many players are valued. Um, yeah. Not every team is a uh, you know brain genius, uh, uh, galaxy brained uh, analytics team, and some are going to no. be, and some are going to be like Kuznetsov's got it going on, and Carlson got is a Norris I mean, Trophy still a GM. Yeah. Right, right, right. Like if you could, if you you could get a lot of traction with like John Carlson's eight million dollars a year. Obviously, you need to find if, if he were healthy. I wouldn't do it. And that's why those first two months of the season are going to be really important. Those first two months, by the way, could happen anytime between October and October of 2021. I have no idea when the next season will start, but uh, John Carlson might be 33 by then. uh, Having like four bubble cities or something and having teams rotate, which uh, I like, I saw people dumping on it, but I I don't know. I mean, like, why not try that? Like, I don't, I don't really see a ton of great options for how the regular season is going to work anyways. Um, But one, yeah, I'm kind of curious, like, where you're at with – we talk about players and contracts as they get older. Um, I don't know if I've heard you talk about the Nick Backstrom contract extension, but, I I mean, I'm, I'll am i be honest. I'm kind of nervous about it. I, I mean, like, Backstrom seems like he could walk out and still make perfect passes and all that, but he's clearly slowing down just from a speed perspective. So, I don't know. Kind of, kind of where were you at on that extension when it was signed, and where are you at on it now? I, I think it came in less than I thought it would, right? Um, or did it? But is he really in a year or whatever? Uh, maybe, maybe I don't know. So let me just go to CapFriendly.com. This is an advertisement for CapFriendly.com. Uh, I typed it in wrong. Uh, so his <laughs> next his next uh, payday is nine point two. So he's making nine point two until the end of twenty twenty four twenty five. Um, yeah, that's a lot of money. Uh, and <laughs> I, some of that was like, hey, hey, Nikki, we're sorry. We got a lot of value out of you on your last contract for a long time. Um, yes. And he's certainly going to be like way older on this. Uh, and he's getting slower and he wasn't that fast to begin with. Um, uh, that said, the things he does are traditionally skills that age. OK, right. Like yeah, uh, puck handling, uh, like he's a, he's a playmaker and he doesn't have to be fast. He doesn't have to be the guy like skates down the ice. But they have to be really smart about how they complement them. Uh, oh yeah. So I'm I'm okay with it. I really am. Um, I I think he's super important, and I also think without him, 
the Capitals have no top six centers, as far as I'm concerned. Fair. Uh, that is, that is uh, fair. I, I think uh, uh, playing Evgeny Kuznetsov with Alex Ovechkin is uh, criminal in the year 2020. Yeah. I, well, I, I think it was it was during that the Isle series where they're doing some Kuznetsov, Ovechkin, and Tom Wilson, who I, I like, but oh boy, at even strike defense, they were uh, not great. Uh, well, I think it left something to be desired defensively. It's fair to say. Yeah, and I, like every you know, few months, I would like do like with or without you comparisons, and I was always, at least since 2018, since the Cup year, I was always happier with Ovechkin and that line as a unit uh, when Kuznetsov was away from it, both yeah. in terms of like Ovechkin's like personal offense and for um, uh, on ice results in general. So I, I, yeah. I, I'm really worried about Kuznetsov. I think there's a lot of ways that you could play them together. Like I think him and like either with Oshi and and uh, Wilson, probably more so with with Oshi. I think you get like a, a like a compliment there, like where they benefit each other. Um, I, I think like an Oshi Kuznetsov thing is probably a, a, a better combination, but uh, sure. I think they need to think about these things as units. Um, and uh, if if you if you're gonna play Kuznetsov and you're sort of locked in that deal and you think that you can get him better. Then it's important to find a way to make that player valuable. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I I think Nick Backstrom has a whole lot more utility, and his half wall play uh, on the power play destroys Kuznetsov as far as I'm concerned. I think he's a oh, genius yeah. over there, and like like he, I, I think he'll be 35 years old and still be one of the hardest guys to get off the puck in the league. Like I think mm-hmm. he's an awesome puck handler. It just sucks that he's so slow with it. Yeah, well, and master of the uh, the counter hit, which is one of my or the kind of retaliatory uh, elbow back, which is always one of my favorite little backstromisms. One of the things about Nikki too, like he is, I, I say this with like a giggle, so like I hope like fans of other teams don't hear this, but he's one of the dirtiest players in the league. Oh he yeah, just does it every <laughs> once in a while, like people are like Tom Wilson's dirty. I was like, dude, Nick Backstrom will cross check you in your teeth. Like, but he'll only do it once every two years and he'll get away with it half the time. But like, like when he got he suspended never talk about ago, <laughs> he deserved it. Like, like when he got suspended from that game, uh, I guess it was like a, the Bruin series in like what, 2013 or something like that. Yeah, Holy yeah. crap. Did he deserve that? <laughs> like he, he was super dirty. He does that stuff all the time. Uh, so yeah. I do it. I, I, I love him. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm OK with it. I mean, obviously 9.2 is way too much to spend, but I also understand why the team's getting sentimental. They're doing the same thing that uh, the Penguins are. They're just not winning cups while they're at it. You know, like the Penguins are like, we're going to get sentimental uh, and try to get the keep, keep this party going as long as we can. Whereas the um, the um, the uh, the Caps are like, we're going to keep this party going as long as we can. And uh, it'll be a party that's <laughs> we're not going to win games. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, a minimum, it won't be boring. Right. So that's so that's at least something. Definitely not. No, no. Um, all right. So uh, we are an hour in as as uh, whenever we get together, it's always always long podcasts, uh, which is great. I enjoy talking to you. So uh, I'm going to conclude by um, I, I think hopefully Becca from our site will have stopped listening at this point. Um, Becca, if you're still here. Hello. Uh, but uh, I have a segment that I'm calling uh Good tweet, Pete's esports minute, which are is something. Don't ask me to say that multiple times. Uh, but I, I was kind of curious. I know that you've talked about this before. Uh, in terms of how esports is kind of handling the coronavirus and all the various stoppages and kind of doing more tournament focused things. So I don't know. Kind of, can you kind of describe what esports? Uh, and I know this is a broad answer because there's lots of different things under the esports umbrella. But kind of, how did you? think esports handled the coronavirus and what are some maybe lessons that the broader sports world and maybe the broader world can learn from it so um the thing that like esports can do that obviously like meat sports can't is play online rather than like have what people think of as like a LAN or like a local area network like you know wired up events so rather than having like they went from like having these like house shows effectively and you know like uh, and i'm thinking of like the overwatch league here but there's a bunch of them um you know, they would have they would have like a big show at like the Anthem, like a big weekend uh, uh, homestand at the Anthem in D.C. Uh, and then they would go out to like California or go to Houston or whatever. Um, those all ended and they went to like online play. It took them a couple of weeks to really get figured out. But, you know, by, I don't know, April, mid-April, they were they were sort of getting back to usual. Um, and they had some teams that just at, like literally fell apart, like two or three teams that were saying, like, we can't make this work. We don't know how to communicate with our players. We can't keep them safe. And so they said, OK, we got to stop. But 
they I I watched a crazy ton of like Overwatch League and esports in general, uh, and it kept me entertained when there was nothing else out there. Uh, yeah. So I, I think they did a really when good. When we're job. in the marble races time of sports. Yeah, but 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 the, there are a lot of fatigue issues that come up, and like um I think that there's like a really quickly evolving world for uh like labor solidarity in uh, esports. Uh, like when they were doing like the travel schedule that they had earlier, it was it became apparent pretty early on that players were going to get burnt out and quit. And then when uh, when like uh, the the pandemic changed the situation a little bit and they were a little bit more like locked down, they were still playing way too much and they needed some like limitations on, on stuff, but they didn't have quite that level of burnout. And I think as soon as things get back to normal, which I call 2023, um, we may see like those same issues pop up again. That said, I've had a, I've had a blast with my uh, my special little, you know, boys and gal. There's one there's one woman in the entire Overwatch League, uh, and she's excellent. Um, hey, I, well, better, better, than, better than the NHL, right? So they're exactly one better than the NHL in that respect. Yeah. <laughs> hey, by the way, yeah, yeah, uh, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Well, uh, I mean, I think the NHL we're still waiting for our first woman assistant coach, which I think all other sports leagues have now done, or the major sports leagues have now done. So uh, I guess welcome to being a hockey fan, huh? That, you know what though? Uh, there, uh, there's some big brains, uh, maybe not like behind the bench, but like, yeah, there's some, there are some really smart, uh, you know, women in in hockey now, uh, in in a very variety of different roles. Like and Seattle, right? They've been they've been going after that. Hell yeah! Too. And yeah. The, I think the volume's just gonna get turned up on those over the years as, uh, you know, the meritocracy slowly drowns in a bathtub the uh, the old boys club. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's hard to even say it's a meritocracy. At this no, no, point I'm saying time. like those are like forces in tension, and yes. eventually, um, the 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 meritocracy will slip something into the old boys' clubs, uh, uh, Tim Hortons coffee, and then they'll get a little sluggish and they'll say, "Oh, honey, just take a bath," yeah. and that's what, and then that's where the old the old boys' club dies in the bathtub. Because well, I mean, maybe uh, that that not not that I wish unemployment on anyone, but uh. This was death. This was an unemployment. That wouldn't that wouldn't maybe be the worst thing in the world. Uh, Okay, Mike Milberry. I know we're at an hour. I'm sorry, but no, you're fine. You're fine. (laughs) Is there like so? I'm of the same boat. Like I didn't want to do like a get somebody fired story in this like moment, but like I mean I've 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 talked about it a ton, and there's just no one worse for the NHL than the NHL's representatives on broadcasts. Just people that have zero like. Doc Emmerich wears on me, but he's enthusiastic and you can tell he, I mean, like he loves this sport and like, uh, like, and even Pierre McGuire is enthusiastic and he's a total, he can't wait to tell you things, you know what I mean? But Mike Milbury is like, is just, he's been over this thing for like 10 years. He's, he's, he's no fun. There's no joy in it. And, And on top of that, all he's there to do is to represent, like, uh, to make it as unwelcoming as possible. Like what are, who is actually thinking that these are good ideas? Oh yeah. I don't know. I I'm, I get so frustrated by the way the sport gets covered. And like you saw, like in Canada, they they tried for I don't know six months to sort of like broaden their the the appeal. And if they gave that more time, I think they would have seen it like you know, it pay off with Hockey Night. Oh yeah. 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 You can't well, just have a small constantly receding demographic that you're you're yeah. feeding to right like if you really think that your sport's good then you want to share it with people yeah and mike milberry doesn't want to share it with people and it's 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 frustrating too because i think that there's i, I mean and I, I think we're both kind of talking about the nbcsn broadcast in particular because like hockey night canada like is at least trying certain things they have uh i think a prominent seek in one of the roles there so at least they're I, I, I think you could, and obviously getting rid of Don Cherry helps quite a bit there, but it, I, the NBCSN stuff is just frustrating because, I don't know, I watch it and I'm not, it doesn't it seem like a lot of people there are particularly excited to even talk about hockey. It's just nope. frustrating and weird. Yeah. And yeah. mostly. And then, <laughs> and then like, I, I, what the, God, well, I, can't, I can't tell some of the, the, the dudes apart. Uh, I mean, I could tell Patrick sharp apart from anybody and he's fun honestly the play like the, yeah. the guys that are like current or recent players have been great yeah anton carter's been fine 
Answer Carter's great. Uh, who was the goalie that was on? Um, um oh, uh, was it um the the Eddie Locke? Maybe am I mixing that up? I don't know. No, I, I don't remember. Definitely like it might have been like a Vancouver. Anyway, my brain's dead, but yeah. uh, that's fine. <laughs> this, one, this one excellent, and I, I think they'll get there in time. But they just they just gotta step on their shoelaces every way on their way. Like it's a long and ambling path to making the right choice and making a good product. And they're going to screw up as much as they can. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's frustrating. Well, um, you know, who doesn't screw up products is, uh, Peter Hassett. Uh, so Peter, where can, uh, sorry, th- that was a, that was a behind the bastards level transition. So really, really <laughs> not proud of that one, but that's fine. Uh, yay leftist podcast. But anyway, yeah, um, so, uh, I got. I, I get to. We're we're an hour five in. I get to. I get to make one tiny little political thing, right? I think that's fine. Absolutely. Listen to their John Brown episode. It's a good one. Oh yeah, that one rules. Yeah. Or their one. They've done a bunch on L. Ron Hubbard. Oh really? I'll take that one out. Instantly amazing. Oh yeah. Oh, actually, they're like, uh, John Brown is not a bastard in theirs. Uh, well, yeah. Good. Good. It's like, the, like once a year they do like it's like for like Thanksgiving they do like a not bastard episode. Yeah, or well, they they also did the uh, the, uh, the behind the police, which I thought was consistently very good too. So uh, yeah, I, uh, so yeah, spend the end of this podcast listening to other podcasts instead. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but uh, all right, well, Peter, where can uh, people find your stuff? I would recommend you don't, but on Twitter, uh, Twitter.com/slash Peter Hassett, <laughs> and on Russian Machine Never Breaks.com. Agreed. Agreed. And uh, you can find uh, this fine podcast wherever you find podcasts. Uh, if you like the show, please rate, rate, subscribe, and review. Do all of those things. If five you made it to the end of the podcast, give, give them five star reviews, everybody. Yes, you, you you can, and you can even call me out by name and say that I'm the worst part of the podcast. That's okay. <laughs> uh, I I've, I've mentioned that review now every single time because I actually enjoy it and it's kind of fun. And my friends now text it to me and make fun of me with it. Oh, that's good. It. So, oh, yeah. You got it. You got it humor about hockey and this podcast and everything so uh yeah if you like all those things do that follow uh the show at japers on radio and uh you can follow me at greg y underscore jr and uh i will be tweeting about the rest of the playoffs and random leftist stuff as i feel like it so uh it'll uh it'll, it'll at minimum hopefully never be boring even if you want to strangle me at the end of it um all right but uh peter thank you so much for having on and uh we'll have you on again soon thank you so much take care